podcast, before we get into this episode, I wanna remind you that the film has dropped. The incredible reaction from everyone around this film, around changing your mind, please go consume it. It just might change your perspective. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Hey everybody, welcome to VaynerX Presents Marketing for the Now, episode number seven. I can't believe it's number seven, Gary. We had a double header last week. I thought it was the best ever. What did you think? Uh, I basically try to live in the framework of the thing you're doing right then is the best ever, and then the next one will be better than that. So I'm glad to hear you liked it, Andre. It's good to see you. <laughs> I loved it, but I'm, I'm actually even, I'm so fired up about this show. We're going to be learning about all kinds of crazy things. So we're going to be talking about shopping and travel and dating and entertainment. We've got a great roster of speakers. My daughter did want to bring us a little present. She's hoping this might help us. Some people have been asking for some additional branding. So we're just going to put that here. <laughs> Thank you, Aiden, very much. Number seven. So we've got a first up guest, Musa Tariq. How do we even introduce Musa? Musa has had an amazing career. He's had senior roles at Apple, Burberry, Nike, Ford, and most recently at Airbnb. He's going to teach us a couple things about how to position ourselves as leaders for what's next. Thanks so much for joining us, Musa. Hey, thanks for having me. Musa. Uh, it's so great to see you, brother. Uh, I, you know, I, I feel this unbelievably big warmth towards you. We've had uh, a lot of opportunity to interact through the years, given our careers. Um, so thanks for being here, and I hope you're well. I appreciate it, Gary. I, I always I share a story about you that the very few times I've ever needed you or said, Gary, I need 15 minutes, you've always showed up, so I appreciate that. I appreciate you saying that. And, and to that point, actually where I wanna go right away, and for everybody who's watching, thanks for being on. Last week on Twitter, it was remarkable. Uh, let's use the hashtag uh, marketing for the now. I just tweeted it. Please get involved in the conversation. As you know, I'm dictating the show based on your feedback in real time, because uh, I like to juggle. Which I think one of the things that I most admire about you is there is a slew of young marketers, and young and old for that matter, that when they hit my radar, I'm like, oh, this, this, this guy, this gal, this individual is really getting it. Uh, hopefully I'll serendipitously find them in my life. During this time with COVID, I've been able to be a little bit more thoughtful and reach out and just say, hey, I admire your work. And we've had a tea over Zoom. And inevitably, literally, two out of every three times this has happened over the last decade for me, and especially over the last five years, your name gets brought up by that individual as somebody who's behind the scenes mentored. You know, you make this nice statement about me, I get to reciprocate it. You've, you've, you, you have a lot of leadership capabilities. You've had some great leaders in your career, at least from my observation from the far. But, but how do you think about uh, mentorship, leadership, guidance? I've seen you active on social in important social conversations, professional ones. What's your, what's your kind of ethos and thesis right now of, of what create, creates a good leader? Yeah, uh, Gary, well, I, I think it's a great question. I think it's rooted very heavily in, in my past, right? Um, I was adamant and destined to be a banker because um, when I was growing up in, in London, like if I wanted to drive a fast car, like being a banker was the thing. <laughs> and unfortunately, halfway through my university, I lost both my parents and had to completely pivot because I met someone who just told me to do something I love in life and you'll do well in it. Do something you love in life and you'll do well in it. And there was no one, Gary, for me to go to and ask about 
advertising and marketing. I loved that advertising and marketing. It was like the thing that I wanted to do. It was the thing that I was most passionate about. Yet, like LinkedIn wasn't around. Facebook had just kind of started. There was no way to connect with people. And it was hard. Like it was really, really hard. And it was only because I met one individual who worked in marketing, who I happened to sit next to in a restaurant and we randomly started talking, who kind of guided me. Was it, was it literally that random? It, it, well, it, it was literally that random. His name was uh, uh, Michael Ingpong, who's now a, a marketing director in, in the UK. And it was as random as me sitting next to him and us just happening to talk to each other. And it was based on this idea of, you know, peop- very successful people talk about luck, right? And I once heard this story about luck or serendipity is chance versus opportunity, right? This idea that if you don't put yourself in that situation in the first place, the opportunity doesn't present itself. And so I just happened to go to this dinner that I didn't want to go to in the first place, went to this dinner, sat next to him, and randomly we started talking. And he was the one person who, the only person that I knew in the industry who basically started setting me on my way. And so as a result, since then, I've tried to be that person for so many people because it is a tough industry to get into. Uh, it isn't an easy industry to break into. And so whenever anyone has reached out on, on LinkedIn or Instagram, sometimes it's hard, as you know, to find time for everyone. But what I've started doing is putting groups together of like 30 people at a time, sometimes five people, sometimes two people. And sometimes it's this quick voice message back, um, just giving guidance. And I, and I think that there is a lot of information out there on the internet. But the one thing that I've been finding really useful to share right now is specifically about people who have lost their jobs. There are a lot of people in in our industry who are either have lost their jobs or have used this time to reflect on their own values, to look at new things. Um, and, And so there isn't much information out there on like guiding yourself through this kind of jungle of finding your next job like, and, what, and what it is you want to do. Um, and if you don't mind, there's a very simple framework that I've been getting people to think about. Um, Indian Nuri, the, the, the chairwoman at, at PepsiCo kind of said, be nostalgic about the past, realistic about the present and optimistic about the future. And, and what she talks about in being nostalgic about the past is like, we can all be really optimistic about what we've done and achieved and we should be nostalgic about that. But the most important thing right now is to be realistic about the present, right? And, and being realistic about the present is two things. It's micro, like what is, what is your current circumstance? Like, do you need a job tomorrow? Do you need a job in a week's time? Do you need to make money in three months time? Like how much space do you have in your, your, your life to be looking for the next thing? Um, and like being very real with yourself on the skill sets that you have. Because I think Gary, people find it very hard to be realistic about their current circumstance. Um, and then the I, second bit I, is just I agree. And, being and I felt, very aware of what's out there. And I feel like they're all, you know, it's very funny you said that. I agree with you. I also think people struggle in the macro, no matter what is going on around just being self-aware. I think we hope too much. Like there's, Musa, there's unlimited things I wish I could do. Listen, yeah. I'm trying to buy the Jets because I want to win a Super Bowl. If I could be a football player, I could have controlled it a different way. I wish I was 6'3 and could throw the ball 100 yards. Like there's, there's a lot of things you could wish. I think to your point, I think people struggle with reality and they use escapism and many other things to not go there. And I think when you go there, it actually unlocks enormous happiness 
Because once you get comfortable with your shortcomings or the things that haven't or losing or adversity, it really does lead to opportunity. It really does. And uh, I agree with you. I, I see a lot of people struggle with the reality of the situation. I mean, speaking of which, you know, I think post COVID when it settles down, I think we have a lot of reckoning to do with the economic impact. And I, I think that there's going to be a lot more people um, struggling with uh, a lot more people struggling with jobs in our industry. Musa, what, um, what about, because you've always had this incredible taste. You know, I spend a lot of time talking about building frameworks to eliminate being at the mercy of incredible taste and finding right instead of being right. But you, listen, you have a knack, it is what it is. What have you seen creatively out there during the last hundred days? You know, there's been so much social unrest, there's been so much, you know, economic unrest with COVID, but you know, I know you're always watching any brands, any individuals, any platforms, anything creative that struck to you? Like, this is a very selfish question. I'm just genuinely curious what, yeah. what you've seen. I mean, listen, I, I think that the, the biggest shift has come from, um, and, and this, is, this is not rocket science, right? The biggest creativity that I'm seeing these days is, is coming from, from individual people, right? And, I, and I, I was having this conversation with someone yesterday. I was talking about TikTok. And specifically what I was talking about TikTok is that when I was, when Instagram was launching, I knew we were all following the same hundred people, right? We were following the, like the Zach Kings of the world. We were following like the same hundred people. And, and now on TikTok, we're not following the same people. I can guarantee you, I'm following some random dude. You're following this random person. We're all following random people because the long tail of creativity on TikTok is amazing. And I always question this idea of like, hold on a second, when Instagram first launched, was it that creativity didn't exist? It did exist. It's just that the platform enabled um, people to find people versus people to find creativity. Whereas I think what TikTok has done so well with their algorithm is that they're now showing people creativity from different individuals and highlighting creativity over someone's social graph, over who they're connected to and so on. And I just think that like, I mean, again, you talk about this all the time. I'm just blown away by the amount of creativity that's on, on TikTok right now. Um, and and I, I think it's, it's far more interesting than anything that brands are doing at the moment, if I'm being brutally honest. I think yeah. like, a lot of brands have been really good at adapting to the scenario and the situation of COVID. But when it comes to creativity, um, I, I just think that creators are doing far better job. Oh, individual people now, um, not even necessarily creators, are, are doing a far better job um, than brands. So. Before we get out of here, because I think, um, you know, this is rapid fire. One thing I admire also uh, from your career that I think could help a lot of people is speed. You know, I, I think you've always, you know, I, especially, you know, we, we met Burberry, Nike, you, Apple. I mean, these are big, iconic logos. And, and I think that taste was something that always kind of helped you. But I, I always admired that you, you had an element of speed that was very foreign to big, institutions your execution at airbnb was fat like how do you value speed what can people how do people think about speed how do yeah. you think about speed? the key gary is simple as long as your foundation is strong anything you build on it happens quickly so my my my, my metaphor for this is like when you go past a construction site for months and months and months you see nothing and then all of a sudden, it, like that building builds up quickly. And the reason you see nothing is because for so long, they're working on the foundation. And I think when you look at brands like Apple, Nike, Burberry, Airbnb, 
their foundation is so strong in that they know what their brand is. They know what they stand for. They do all that groundwork first so that when a decision needs to be made, Gary, it's a quick, easy decision. And, and, and to go back to my point about mentorship right now is, is while people have a bit of downtime, I'm asking people to reflect on what their own foundations are. Like what are their own values? What are the things that are non-negotiable so that when opportunities come along, it's never a difficult decision, but it's a quick, easy decision that people can make. You know, it's and funny. It's funny you say that. Um, been really trying to get more insight from my leadership team and bringing outside forces, just really genuinely like willing to go there, trying to make people feel safe to give me feedback. Cause I'm a, you know, you know, it, like any boss, everyone's got their personality. And one of the feedback loops is like, he makes decisions too quickly. It could be from like one person saying something, he decides to change everything. And I was smiling because I'm like, I can't wait to address my leadership team about this because I understand why one would think that. But I would hope that they would realize that this is just massive pattern recognition of 25 years and foundational things. You may think because Karen may come back and be like, oh my God, I told Gary that we need to change this and it's happening tomorrow. That was 12 months of debating in my head. And, and I think when I, you were just talking like, cause I'm, you know, obviously I saw that feedback yesterday and I was like, oh God, it's actually so slow. You know, it's, by the way, in the, the next line of the feedback was he fires people too slowly. And I was like, don't they understand that's one and the same thing? Yeah, that's yeah. It's the same thing. Well, that, I mean, and, and I, I honestly, Gary, I think like the thing I've seen, the best leaders I've had are leaders who make decisions quickly. And, so and, 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 and I totally agree with you. You can't assume that they are making that decision in, in one second. You're, you're, pe you're, you're getting a decision that was built on years and years of experience. Uh, 100%. And context, right? The ones that are actually in the trenches. Totally. Absolutely. Yeah. But it's sometimes even better to make a quick decision and get it wrong than overthink something for too long and miss an opportunity. Preaching. My friends, everybody's watching. One of the great decisions of your career would be to follow this man at Musa, M-U-S-A. I see a lot of you giving him daps on Twitter. Uh, I, I could speak to him forever. I miss him dearly. But the truth is this next guest is something I've been waiting for forever. So Musa, I'm getting hey. your beautiful face out of here and we're moving on to Stephanie. I, appreciate in a second. You. I, I love you, pal. Let's talk soon. Thanks, Musa. Yeah, I just can't believe that we have Stephanie McMahon of WWE up next. Steffi is not only the chief brand officer of WWE, she's a professional wrestling personality and just <laughs> a badass all around. Stephanie is responsible for WWE's global growth across the lines of business, and she's the driving force behind WWE's women's evolution, which has given female performers an equal share of the spotlight both in and outside of the ring. She's won more awards than we can mention. We'd be here all day. Welcome, Stephanie. Thank you. Can you hear me? We Am can, I on? Steph. You are super on. <laughs> How are you? I'm good. How are you, Gary? Thank you, Andrea, for that introduction. That was um, pretty, pretty spectacular. It sounds like something we do in the ring. Am I blushing? You can see I'm blushing. Not yet, but, but one, thing that, uh, one thing to make you blush, as a hardcore WWE fan for my whole life, as Andrea was doing the intro, you know, talking about leadership a lot of times people whether it's me too black lives matter they react after the fact and then there's leadership that reacts prior to when they're supposed to or when the lights are on you know as as andrea was introing you i was smiling because the female aspect of the wwe universe is so advanced at this point i want you to talk about it but what i was thinking in my mind is like that is so true because when i was growing up 
Wendy Richter and the fabulous Mula got some spotlight, but there just wasn't that much else. And to watch what's transformed in the organization um, over the last two decades on this front, and even the way women were positioned and things, it's just incredible what's happened. Please elaborate. Absolutely. Well, it really started with how we started to train and recruit our female athletes. You know, we wanted the most elite athletes from both a male and female standpoint, and we started training them the same as the men and mm. giving them the same opportunities, the same match time, which like anything else, the more reps you have, the better you're going to get. And what happened is at NXT, which started off as our developmental brand and evolved into our third global brand, the women started really stealing the show. And uh, there were chants of this is wrestling and women's wrestling. I remember. So then on Raw and SmackDown, and this is actually uh, February 2015, we had a women's tag match, which lasted all of 30 seconds in a three-hour show, which was unfortunately the norm. And our audience started a hashtag called Give Divas a Chance that trended worldwide for three days, demanding more screen time, better athleticism, better storylines, better character development for our women. And uh, our, our chairman and CEO, my father, who you know well, Gary Vincent, <laughs> responded at the highest level and said, we hear you keep watching, hashtag give divas a chance. Steph, I'm really curious. We have, we have some really interesting you know, parallels with growing up in a family business. Just out of my own curiosity, just knowing there's a lot of different people watching that are in family businesses. Your dad, such an icon. Your, your grandfather, such an icon. You know, as you were, maybe for the people that are watching right now, because there's a mix of entrepreneurs, executives, there's such a mix on this show, which kudos to Andrea and the team for creating this environment. Um, when did your dad start listening to you? It's really as simple as that. Like knowing your dad is such a force, like how did you, how did you go navigate that? Like, like I, I, my dad actually gave me a lot of room because I got in at 14 and really proved myself. And even when he was giving me a lot of room, any room he didn't give me for something that I wanted was a frustrating point. It's family dynamics. How did that evolve for you where, where your voice became bigger at the table? How was that process for you? Because I think within that story, and obviously so many people know the two of you, it might help somebody who's going through it right now where they just can't get their parent to give them that look. I think I'm still fighting for it, honestly, Gary. It's not <laughs> like I have a bigger voice at the table. That's for sure. Um, but I would assume, Steph, and I'm sorry to interrupt, it's probably yeah. bigger than it was five or seven years ago. To your point, like my dad like my dad still also, in all my accolades, pushes against some of my ideas. You know, I, I respect that. I understand that. But I would assume it is a little bit bigger than it used to be, no? Yeah, for sure. You know, and I think it, you know, it, it ebbs and flows. And um you know, it's complicated. Family business is super complicated, especially when you have such a strong personality, as you were mentioning before in your own business with you as the boss, when your boss has such a, a strong personality and is such an, an icon. And, you know, my dad grew up in a trailer park and, and he truly lived the American dream and took what was a Northeast regional territorial business and turned it into this global, global phenomenon. Park. 100%. 180 countries and 28 languages. We have, you know, the WW Network, one of the first to launch an OTT service behind Netflix and Hulu because he took a calculated risk betting on himself and his business. Fourth most viewed YouTube channel in the world, over a billion social media followers. That's that's because of him and his vision. And it takes someone strong who makes quick decisions, you know, to, to harken back to your previous conversation and who's just truly driven, but who also listens. And I 100%. think that's- 100%. Yeah, one of the- I, 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 I'm sorry to interrupt, but I just want to, I think praise is always fun when you get to hear it. 
literally because I realized somewhere in my 30s that I had the knack of understanding where attention was. There are very few people in the history of business that understood attention better than your father, whether it was Saturday morning, whether it was cartoons, whether it was Saturday night's main event, whether it was MTV, whether it was Cindy Lauper or Liberace, with, like, like it, it's so intuitive to me. It's how I built my universe. Like, I, I would argue that your father as an executive from afar, analyzing almost everybody, is one of the great listeners, even though when he talks, he talks with conviction and I'm sure very much juice. And I'm, again, knowing family businesses, but like, it's funny you said that. I actually put your dad's listening skills at the height of modern culture. Agreed. And, and he doesn't just listen to, he listens to fans, he listens to the live audience, he listens on social media, but he also listens to our employees. You know, and he's always said, you never know where a great idea is gonna come from. So he solicits that, that opinion. You know, he talks to people. He really speaking, does. And speaking I think of leadership, does, um, do you feel that your father, do you feel you, do you feel that your husband are good at admitting they're wrong? I've been thinking a lot about listeners. Listeners actually stunningly don't mind being wrong. How, how does that play out in your leadership style or the other leaders? So for me personally, um, I am very transparent and I own mistakes. And I think that that's really important. Um, I think that, you know, there's a difference between being wrong and making mistakes. And I know that that's a, a subtlety and semantics, but I do think human psychology plays into that. Um, you know, and uh, again, just going back to, to Vince, you know, he believes in sunk cost. So if you've made a mistake, mm. something isn't working, stop throwing good money after bad, mm. just move on. You know, learn the lesson that you're supposed to learn and then apply it. You can always make mistakes, but don't make the same mistake twice. Stephon, he also, uh, please. Excuses are never tolerated. <laughs> <laughs> Stop, actually, this is not, I'm just, uh, Andre, I'm sorry. I'm getting extremely selfish here. Everybody's watching. I'm sorry. This is, I'm just nerding out too much. Steph, genuinely back to like learning and watching audience. Let's give somebody a huge shout out. In your, in your career, watching the talent, who, uh, who most pleasantly surprised you from the raw human they were when they walked in and started doing undercards to the superstar they became. Who were you most impressed with where you're like, oh my gosh, I'm so proud of X or Y. They came here as a young kid or bushy eyed or maybe even came from a different league and had too much ego. And then you watch them adjust and become more humble. And like who really, really as a talent did you see listened, whether it was from your dad, you, you know, Hunter, you know, or the audience or who listened the most in the last decade or two that you really were incredible with, like I'm impressed sure with? That they listened the most. I mean, there's so many stories I could tell throughout time. I mean, even Stone Cold Steve Austin, who was, you know, the ringmaster and he was standing at the curtain and he tells this story of he was watching somebody in the ring and I'm, I'm not sure who it was. And he looked over at, at Vince and he said, hey, you should really give that kid a push. They've really got something. And, you know, my dad looked back and he said, well, all I can provide is the opportunity. The rest is up to him. And Austin said, that's when the light bulb went off for him. Like, mm -hmm. oh, this is really about me and my ability to listen and my ability to grow my brand. And I think the talent that we have today have more of an opportunity than anybody ever did before because of social media, because they recognize the opportunity to build their own brand and their own voice, both in and outside of the ring. Because the more people are engaged with you as a person, as an individual, which again, I think is an evolution, 
you know, the more they're going to want to see you perform or they're going to want to hear you talk or, or see you, you know, in the ring. Um, but I also think, you know, Becky Lynch is, is a huge, you, I could name so many, Drew McIntyre. I mean, mm -hmm. he was here and then he left and, and he went and he has truly learned so much and matured, you know, as an individual to now come back and be champion. Let's, uh, let's finish with this. So many businesses, big and small, pivoting during COVID. You know, just watching again, because I have so much more knowledge as a fan, the pivoting that the organization has done. What have you learned about this 150 days about your organization or about changing your mind or pivoting or adjusting or never saying never? What's the biggest learning point? Uh, because obviously the way you're producing today is so different than ever before. What's the biggest insight that you can learn uh, from the macro? Uh, well, I think for WWE, you know, we never went off the air. So we've continued to produce seven hours of content every single week at a minimum for our television partners for USA Network and Fox. And, um, you know, in, including our pay-per-views. WrestleMania went from being at Raymond James Stadium and what was supposed to be in front of 80,000 people to being performed in our performance center, which is essentially a warehouse. And we took it to two days over one with absolutely no fans in the audience. Um, I think the ability to be fluid, um, the ability to, um, you know, make changes quickly, the ability to listen, and then sticking to your mission and reimagining your business, but staying true to what your mission is. And WWE's mission is to put smiles on people's faces the world over. It's something that we take very seriously. We, we've considered a responsibility to stay on the air to entertain our fans in the safest way possible, as long as we can be safe for our crew, employees, and performers. I love that. Steph, uh, just a, a, another fun question. How about you as a, as a human between either e-commerce or your own media consumption? I think all of us, Yep. Our behavior has changed during this time. Is there some, is there any product you now buy online that's delivered that you never considered pre-COVID and you're in love with the experience? Or is there some show on Netflix or Hulu or some app that you're playing with? Just you, the human being, what's a new behavior, a consumer behavior that you can feel that you've uh, established during this time? I've definitely uh, transitioned more to digital consumption. I think that, you know, you can look at all of the trends and everyone always assumed it was going to go that way, but I think it's pivoted, you know, three to five times faster than, you know, than would have happened without COVID. And, and I'm certainly a, a part of that transition. When I do watch, you know, programming on linear television now, I'm like, oh, commercials. <laughs> yeah. Like, where do they come from? You know, and, and that's not to say anything against our advertising partners. I think it's going to force the ad industry really to partner with content creators in a different way to bring an experience, you know, to the viewers or watchers or fans or consumers, whatever it is that is additive to them um, versus, you know, taking away the time of, of their viewing. It's going to cause us all to be more creative. I agree. I appreciate your time. I hope you have a wonderful rest of the year and I can't wait to see you soon. Thank you, Gary. I can't wait to see you too. And Andrea, I called you Andrea. It's Andrea. I, I correct oh, my she, she, she answers to all, <laughs> all versions. The, She's great like that. I'm from the Midwest, so it's really Andrea, Stephanie. Okay, okay. But, but one last thing, Gary, back on the women's evolution, it, uh, it ultimately wound up with our women headlining and main eventing WrestleMania, which is akin to our Super Bowl or the World Cup, and also having not one but two women's matches in Saudi Arabia over the past two years. So I think I saw that's, that. that's pretty strong. Good for you. Thank you so much. Thanks, Thank Stephanie. So Gary, I'm a little distracted. Before we uh, introduce this next guest, I just got a wine text uh, so I just oh today's 
Yeah, just right now. I just did a, let's see, at 12.57, I got it. So what do you think? So it's the Barlow Vineyards 2013 Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, Andrea, I think the, I think, what you think, here's what I think. Forget about the wine. I think that my dad is going to say, who's that Andrea? I like her. She's promoting wine tech. So it's a, it's a good one today, but let's keep moving. All right, good. All right, we'll keep it going. Plug. My dad all right, my next head. up, we're going to learn all about the latest in dating. We've got Justin McLeod, who is the CEO and founder of Hinge, the dating app that's designed to be deleted. Don't know what that means. Hopefully he'll tell <laughs> yeah. us. Uh, Justin will share some insights on how he's grown the user base at Hinge 400% in the last year. Welcome, Justin. Hi, thanks for having me. Justin, it's, it's nice to connect. I've admired your work from afar. I hope you're well. Thank you. You're welcome. First of all, how are you doing? How, you, how are you personally doing through this time period? Uh, I'm personally doing okay. I think we're adjusting to it. I'm getting to spend a lot more time with my uh, newborn, somewhat newborn son. I guess he's almost a year now, but uh, it's, so that's been a silver lining for sure. That's awesome. So yeah. um, there, there was something I saw that you put out or the company put out around the intentionalness around dating that I thought was super interesting. Can you expand on that for everybody? Well, I think that what we're, we're just generally seeing, I think, is that um, given COVID and people having, uh, putting their lives on pause and stepping back and I think getting to take a sort of bigger picture view, people are craving more meaningful connection, more real intention and um, less distracted with, I think, the sort of dating scene or whatever people were experiencing before. And they're looking just for something that I think is just much more uh, meaningful and connective and fulfilling. And uh, I think a lot of people are feeling maybe they're missing that right now. Um, and I think it's accentuated by the fact we're all alone. Most right. And, and do you feel like because conversation takes even more of the forefront when you're not physically in the same place, there's a little more depth to that execution? Well, I think we're finding, uh, I mean, we are seeing increased messaging and we're seeing things like that. I mean, messaging increased like 30% on the platform, right? You know, it, in like April and May. And, um, and I think people are just looking for that connection. I mean, singles more than anyone, especially if you're singles in the city or like living alone in a studio apartment or with a roommate and can't go out, can't go. Like, I think that people are looking for that real connection. And I think right now, I mean, continuing for people, uh, dating apps and, and Hinge are kind of the only game in town. You can't go to clubs and bars and weddings and all the places that people would normally meet people. Um, by the way, everybody who's watching, hashtag marketing for the now. I see a lot of incredible shout outs to Hinge. Uh, Andrea, to answer your question, it's that they want people to fall in love and not have to date and get married. And this way you can delete the app. Uh, so I'm seeing some of those stories. So please continue with the feedback I'm retweeting. It's if nothing else, you're gonna get free followers on Twitter. I know sometimes that's interesting for people. Hinge Labs caught my eye as well in the last couple of years. So I'm just, to be very frank, I'm just making these very selfish, Justin. So I just wanna know more. So tell everybody what that is and, and, and tell me what's going on there. Hinge Labs is the uh, research division within Hinge that's thinking a little bit longer term about where we're going as a product. And um, most importantly, I think essentially what they are is they're looking at uh, daters and who's succeeding and who isn't and why. So I think there's, there's really only so much you can ultimately do with the core product. I think of the analogy of like a gym, you know, you can design a gym well, you can get the right equipment in there, but ultimately someone needs to be there along the side, like alongside you as your personal trainer, 
you know, giving you high fives when you show up, showing you how to use the machines correctly. And so essentially what Hinge Labs is doing is it's following people around the gym, looking at the super fit people, looking at what they're doing differently, and then trying to teach everyone those skills. And so that's most fundamentally what Hinge Labs is gonna be doing. What about for all the entrepreneurs that are watching right now? I think, um, you know, what's your journey? Like, how'd you grow up? Like, what kind of kid were you? Like, you, what is your actual origin story to this moment right now, the, the three minute version? Uh, long story, but I, I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky, and I was a uh, pretty rebellious kid, probably starting in, in high school and into college. I got myself into a lot of trouble, uh, single Why do you think? Did you, did you not like systems and being trapped because you were creative at home yeah, issues? I was like, a, what was your? I was, uh, yeah, for, until eighth grade, I went to a Catholic school. Uh, uh, that was freedom. Like, known as known as the most disciplined catholic school in kentucky and i then went to like a more liberal independent high school and uh and i think um, (laughs) and just went went crazy but even for those standards i was in like i think i broke the um, records for most attentions and also most ap classes so that gives you a sense i was like student of the president government but also they started an entire parent network just because of the parties that i was throwing at my house <laughs> the so that was kind of my uh dual nature and then in college really i went too way too far off the deep end and uh really got into like drugs and alcohol to a level that was like very unhealthy and um, and then the day I graduated, actually, I just stopped drinking, stopped doing drugs, and was like, I'm going to put my life together. Did and, you, just curious, because I think this can help some people watching, sure. to do that the day you graduated, that means there was momentum with yourself in that conversation prior to that. Out of just oh, curiosity, how, mu- how much momentum? Mid-junior year, were you like, this is this is fucked up. I got to like, what, you know, like, because you obviously use that moment as the trigger. I'm just curious yeah. what got you there, because that might be able to help somebody. It was mid-junior year, actually. <laughs> it was uh, early, yeah. Just saying, Andre, uh, you, right you picked the right host for this stuff. No, it was good at this stuff. You know, Go actually ahead. for me, it was, a, it was a journal I was keeping. And uh, when I went to do my study abroad in the UK, and uh, I just remember like keeping a journal, especially about all my travels and all the things that I was going to be doing. And it really ended up being like, I'm never going to drink again. Like, this is really the last time. And then I would find myself like going out the next night. And then when I'd go back and read my journal, I was like, wow, like, you know, I didn't, I just didn't have a concept of how I think powerless I was and, and how much there was a deep inner part of me that wanted to change, but just would get overridden every night when I saw my friends going out. And uh, I think that really hit me and made me scared. And then when I graduated, it was just, I took that as an opportunity to shift. Then I moved, you know, from upstate New York down to Washington, DC and um, found some really great people and teachers and um, really set my life on a pretty different course. And how'd you start the app? Well, it's kind of related to that. So there was a girl that I was dating in, in college named Kate and we shout out to Kate. Yeah. Shout out to Kate. And so we were on again, off again. And, uh, and then at the end of college, we sort of just went our separate ways. And then four years later, after I'd like got my life back together and I was going to Harvard business school, I reached out to her to try to get her back. And she was living actually in London with a, with a guy and told me it was too late and I was heartbroken. And so I started uh, a dating app, which really originally was at Harvard. It was just this thing that would allow people to list their crushes on Facebook and see if two people like each other. And that evolved into Hinge. I'm now married to Kate, long story, but uh, that she ended up being the one. Oh, is that right? 
yeah. In fact, if another four years later. I love how Amy, uh, for everybody who's watching, Amy on my team, you can't see her. She's like in the producer room, but she's right above uh, Justin in my, in my video screen. And when Justin's like, no, I ended up marrying him. I'm like, wait, well, KK? She literally went like this. <laughs> yeah. Which is pretty amazing. So, yeah, so another four years Good later. You. Um, yeah, I flew over amazing. to Switzerland right before she was about to get married and asked her to call it off and move back to America with me, which she did. And what? Yeah, this is getting better by the- It was a wild we, story. We could, we'd spend the whole interview on this if can you I wanted. Get the, Jessica, there's can a, I there's the a last... modern love episode that, that uh, Dev Patel plays me and Kathy, or, um, yeah, that's like number, the second episode on modern love now. Uh, it was sort of an adapted version of it. A- Amy's doing the thing again, because I think maybe she's watched <laughs> that or who knows what's going on right now, but you're, win- you're definitely winning Amy on, the, uh, on this game. Uh, Justin, what about pivoting during COVID, like innovation, like, you know, obviously being an entrepreneur, I know that's like a, we're always prepared to do stuff. Uh, would love to hear your story on what you saw, what you did, what did you not do right? Did you wait too long or what did you do great? All of it helps everybody who's watching. Yeah. So um, in some way, I mean, the first couple of weeks, I think we're, we're pretty, you know, everyone was going crazy and we like, this is late March and I think it, things were really, really uncertain. Uh, you know, we closed down our office. The things that I, you know, we, we obviously started working from home at that point. We pulled back on marketing spend to a pretty big extent because we just didn't know where things were going and we wanted to hunker down. I actually think that was a mistake because what happened was marketing rates got really cheap. And what we realized is people wanted our product actually more Even than more. ever. So, yeah. yeah, so we kind of like turned that, uh, did a 180 on that by May. And then, um you know, really just making sure that our, I mean, we, from a social media perspective, we just went all in on how to help people date during social distancing. We, uh, so that was, a, I think, a big focus for are us. There any, are there any marriages that you already know of that happened literally, has fully happened through, you know, Just through virtual? COVID? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I, we actually, I just saw something today um, that someone wanted to work with us on a proposal for someone that they met during COVID. Uh, so have they, they, have they been, have they physically been in the same room yet? Like I'm looking for the I think the they've full... physically been in the same okay. room. I think at this point people are starting to meet up. We, I did see instances of people like starting to date and, you know, commit to each other without ever having her. I needed, met. just, I needed the, since I lost out on the movie rights to your actual story, I was looking for the fully virtual to like marriage moment, but you're right. People are definitely, you know, Hence why we may be in this for the rest of our lives. Anyway, nonetheless, uh, um, what about your own consumer behavior? Just to mix it up for different people that are watching. Any new apps, any new shows, any new products you're buying DTC that have completely captured you? This is now you, just the human? Um, uh, I'm sitting on this really nice felt yoga ball, which has changed my relationship with my hips uh, <laughs> over the last- No, seriously, that's you know, a big, it's funny, honestly, like, I'm, can, you, can you dig into that? Because by the way, I think people might skip over this. Like, chairs and standing desks and balls like it's a big big deal i mean i'm like literally right now po- like if you see what's going on in my hand i'm i'll show it i'm like poking this rib because of soft tissue like the the ball seating has been a game changer for a lot of my friends yeah i i wasn't really a ball seater because if you have a nice office chair like that i think generally that's okay but the you know i think a lot of us are home at our at our apartment sitting on like a dining room thing like that and it's just not, it's, we're not meant to sit like that all day. And so, yeah, I had to like finally admit that we're, this is for the long term and start investing in my setup here. 
uh, and having like a screen at my height and a ball chair and a you know keyboard down at my keyboard height and anyway so that, speaking, that's speaking of like being honest with yourself and like settling in are you surprised by how well the organization has been able to navigate remotely have you been um, disappointed or are you stunned by how advanced the video technology is slack gmail whatever it may be like the tech stack for this reality have you been pleasantly surprised i think the tech stack has been the the tech stack is is one thing but i think what i've been really pleasantly surprised by is just the team's ability to rally i mean our you know we measure employee engagement and it's generally strong but it's actually never been as strong as it is right now well this is kind of a, a moment that can really make or break a culture and i think luckily we've done a lot of work to uh, really define and document and live our, our culture and our cultural values. And people are just really rallying around the company right now to support it in a time that otherwise people could be like checking out. And so that's been really, really cool to see. And it's just made us a lot more conscious about how we create human connections. Cause you know, we're about creating human connections in the world, but also internally at Hinge, we just, we feel very much like a family because we intentionally create a lot of human connections. So whether it's the warm up that we do on Monday mornings where everyone gets in a room and we sit for a five minute meditation and then we break into breakout rooms and people will share some personal story. Like the prompt might be like a moment that changed your life. And then people will go around, whether you're from like engineering or customer service or whatever, sharing that with like a group of four or five. And that's just creating those cross-functional personal bonds, I think is what really holds us together, allows us to innovate, allows us to share ideas across teams. And so that's been pretty cool to see. It's a and pleasure to be with you, man. Yeah. I really wish you well. Uh, Thank you. Hope, uh, hope we get to jam again and thanks for being on. Andre, let's get to our next guest. Thanks, Justin. Thanks. So now I'm trying to sit up a little bit straighter after that talk. Um, and it's honestly in part because of our, our next guest, Jennifer Say. I have such huge respect for her. Jen serves as the CMO for Levi Strauss, and she's been at Levi's for over 20 years. She also grew up as an elite gymnast, and she published a book with a very long title, but I think it's worth um, sharing it because it tells all. Chalked Up, Inside Elite gymnast, Gymnastics Merciless Coaching Over Zealous Parents eating disorders, and elusive Olympic dreams. And she followed that with the most recently produced um, and revolutionary Netflix film called Athlete A. We're excited to have Jen teach us a little bit more about how we can use our own voices for change. Welcome, Jen. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Jen, it's so nice to have you here. Thank you so much for doing this. Yeah, absolutely. Nice to meet you. It's a pleasure. Um, let's dig into that a little bit, into that intro. Give, uh, give the audience some more context on, uh, on your life experiences and point of view, which has led to uh, the incredible work you're doing as CEO sure. of Levi's. Yeah, I'll give you the very short version of 51 years, <laughs> which is I had an unusual childhood. I was an elite level gymnast. Um, didn't start out thinking that would happen when I started gymnastics at about five years old, but um, through some combination of sort of unnatural discipline and commitment and a degree of talent, I, I got there. <laughs> Um, I was on the national team for eight years, and I was the national champion in 1986. Um, unfortunately, despite my successes, I left the sport pretty broken, physically, emotionally, um, all kinds of ways, which are detailed in the in the book. And it, it's really a result of the culture of coaching cruelty that is 
um, the dominant methodology, I would say, in the sport. So not every single coach, but way, way, way too many. It's so common that it's almost invisible. And it's the, I, it's, it, to your point, and I, I, I had a, a, yeah, it's the standard. It is, it's the standard. And there are exceptions. Oh, um, always. It's the standard. And what I'm learning now is it's the standard around the world. And I'll explain that in a second. Um, so, you know, I, I went to college. I, you know, tried to figure my shit out. Um, <laughs> and it was challenging. You know, if you spend the better part of your sort of childhood being told that you're garbage um, and you're you think you're, you think you're, you're you think you're garbage you do and you know you're told like oh it's just sort of tough coaching or you can contain it here but that's not how it works it's insidious yeah. and it and 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 so you know at 19 or whenever it was when I left to go to college I kind of didn't know who I was without the sport I knew I couldn't do it anymore but I also didn't know how to even decide what I wanted and I didn't think very highly of myself so that's a that's a lifelong journey for everyone but I was sort of starting at a deficit I would say and um I, you know, got to the age of almost 40 and was still really kind of struggling with these things, even though I had a career, I was at Levi's at that point and, and pretty successful and I had a family um, and I still kind of struggled with these things and the after effects. And so I sat down and I wrote a book more to just sort of like get it out and kind of make sense of it. I didn't really think it would be published. I mean, I wasn't an Olympian, I wasn't, you know, but it was. And so I became kind of an early whistleblower who was sort of first person telling account of what the sport was like. And the world was not ready for it at the time. The blowback was pretty intense, um, but I, my confidence built as I continued to talk about it. And because, because, and by the way, God, I mean, I literally have goosebumps because not to the seriousness, but my whole career has been innovating what's the, what's the truth for the consumer versus what businesses have thought. And yeah. so when you just said that, it just resonated. I want people to hear this because it may help them go this route as well. Your confidence was building because you were getting, even though maybe the, the establishment was booing you, you were getting whispers from behind of keep going, this is right, you're helping me, right? I was, I mean, there were young women writing to me um, from gymnastics, but also dance and other sports, other endeavors that were like, this is my life. I understand. I feel less ashamed. Please, this is helping. Meanwhile, the public blowback was pretty intense. And even the sort of from the organization and the threats and veiled and not so veiled. Um, but yeah, I was connecting with people. But I was still, you know, I was just watching recently some clips from back in 2008 when I was on some shows. I was very hesitant. I, you know, I'm much more direct now about, you know, what I believe to be true. I would say things like, this is my experience. It's not meant to be an indictment of the sport. And, you know, I was protecting myself to some extent because it was already so bad. But then as I became sort of at the forefront of sort of speaking up, that also kind of built my confidence. I was standing alone at first, but then there were more and more people. And then, of course, when the Nasser situation broke within USA Gymnastics, which for those that don't know, he was the USA Gymnastics team doctor and he abused, sexually abused over 500 athletes um, over the course of 30 years. Um, I was already sort of embedded in that community of these younger gymnasts and I knew their lawyer and I had met in DC to sort of agitate for legislation. So I was very much sort of enmeshed in this already. So I, that's what led me to the film idea is, you know, I, I knew all the players from the investigative journalists to the prosecuting attorney to the survivors themselves. And I felt like it was a story that could be told. I knew I couldn't direct it, but I knew I could produce it. So. What did you, what did you learn through that personal endeavor that has, made you the leader you are now of one of the most iconic brands in the world? Yeah, it's a uh, great, it's a great question. I have a very specific answer. I mean, Levi's, okay. is a brand, 
Levi's is a brand that is sort of known historically, you know, since 1853, we were sort of created with this idea of profits through principles. I mean, Levi Strauss himself, the first profits he made, he gave to an orphanage. You know, we've taken tough stands on issues across the decades, whether it's integration of factories in the South before the law required it or same-sex partner benefits in 1992. But I think for me, I always sort of was willing to kind of stand up to some extent. But before I wrote my book, I hid a lot of my um, uh, sort of external pursuits from the work uh, workplace because I think, and women do this, right? You don't have pictures of your kids or this is, you know, going back a little bit. Yes. You don't want anyone to think that you have any sort of diversion from the task at hand. And so I didn't want to be up for a promotion and have somebody say, yeah, well, she really wants to be a writer. So let's not consider her. Makes but then sense. I was, but then I was on Good Morning America and I was on HBO Real Sports and you can't really hide it anymore. And it had the opposite effect, which was people thought I was outspoken and values driven and more creative and more intense and more leader, all these things. And so it kind of freed me to just be. put it all out there and to be, be and to yeah, be. to just like bring my full self and my full energy to work. And so that has really um, come into play as the CMO, which I have been for seven years in leading our sort of values-based initiatives and really taking a stand around vote and gun safety. And I'm just, I'm not afraid anymore. It's not going to be as, bad as the blowback was, you know, for my book. So whatever, I'm just going to say it and we'll see where well, we especially, get. Especially when you're on the right side of history. Yes, but it doesn't, <laughs> you know what, it's, it's easy to say that when you have people standing with you. It's a little scarier when you think you are, but you're the only one saying it. But, and I'm sure you feel this, once you do it once, it gets easier <laughs> the second and third. You know, I, I continue to think about you know, I was an immigrant. I was, um, I was born in the Soviet Union. I'm 44. So my country was the bad guys growing up. Right. I was an atrocious student. Like all I had was no, 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 right. which just made innovating so easy. I'm like, the system doesn't like me anyway. This That's is right. easy. No, it's an interesting point. I think if you have sort of an outsider's view, it's much easier to sort of take a stance that kind of puts you on the outside because you're not really risking anything and you already are sort of, and, and I feel like it's interesting. It's, I'm sorry to interrupt. It's really easy to not be scared of losing when you've already that's, lost. That's right. That, yeah, that's right. And I, I think, you know, because I grew up in this world, it was like, this is the way you do it. This is how you have to do it. And then I sort of stepped out of it and I was like, wait a minute, that's not true. Everything I was told is false. It gave me this sort of outsider's perspective that I think often immigrants have, right? You're growing up in the Soviet Union. You're so, this is how it has to be. You come here and you're like, wait a minute, it's not like that. The values are different. The process, everything's different. And so I feel like I got that from the sport. It's hard to imagine how intensely different my childhood was. You know, I was training eight hours a day by the time I was nine years old, you know, crazy shit like that. And so, you know, I don't have memories of school. I don't really have memories of friends. It was just gymnastics. And that was all that mattered. And, and I loved it until I didn't because because that's the way it played out. Jen, let me ask you a question on, on that front. So I love competition, like just adore it. And like business has been such an incredible outlet for me and creativity has. Do you kind of, I'm, I, you know, I'm just listening to you. I'm like, oh, I have, I'm really dying to know what she thinks about this. Do you kind of enjoy marketing from the standpoint of knowing that sometimes, even though you desperately thought it was going to work and everyone's going to think it's so cool, the consumer didn't react. And do you, in a weird way, does that fulfill any part of your competitive spirit? 
That's an interesting question. I, I don't think that's the part I like about marketing. I'll tell you what the part is, but I, okay. I mean, I am. Do you like competition? Do you like competition? I do. I like competition. Yeah. I'm not a believer, even though I, you know, in speaking out now about the film and there's a lot of press I'm doing, you know, it might sort of take away that I'm anti-sport. I'm not, but I want sport that values the athlete and the child first and the sort of mental, I want sport that kind of does what it's supposed to do, which is build kind of physical well-being integrated with mental well-being and doesn't sort of sacrifice children for money and medals. You know, that's what I don't want. And I think losing, to your point, is a really important aspect of sport, which is why I'm also not a fan of everyone gets a medal. Because the whole point- Everyone of gets a medal is destroying, it's, it's and to your point, putting kid, you know, parents that live vicariously through their kids' skill set for their own lack of self-esteem. And they're on the opposite side of the spectrum, but they're both massively detrimental. Well, the fact of it, the fact of it is one of the things you should learn through sport is that you don't always win and you're not good at everything. And that's okay too, you know? And you pick yourself it's up. It's called truth. It's, it's <laughs> fine. It's fine. You know, you can still have fun. You can still enjoy it and you don't have to win. And, and by the way, Jim, we're, we're, you know, I'm really enjoying that. Now I'm like, feel like we're just shooting the shit at a bar. Like, I also think it's okay if they don't like the feeling of losing. Like, you know, like to your point, like, like as soon as I heard you say, it's all right to, you know, like you, it's good to have fun, but like, guess what? I hate, like, I hate that's losing. Yeah, and that's fine too. We've demonized kids that are, you know, it's, it's not fine to like do inappropriate things, but like, if you like love competing so much that it hurts when you lost, like we need to let kids breathe. Yeah, I mean, everybody's different, right? And I had to sort of learn to manage my competitiveness a little bit after gymnastics and I sort of avoided sport altogether. And then I started to go back and go to dance classes in my 20s and I found myself like, I'm not at the front getting the attention all the time. <laughs> and I'm like, this is not competitive. This is like a dance class for 25 year olds. Like just chill out <laughs> and stand in the back and have a good time. So, you know, it's sort of like, you got to figure out what makes you makes you happy. But as far as, I mean, I certainly, you know, I am competitive. I want to win in the market. But what I love specifically about marketing, and I would say not just marketing, but sort of branding more broadly, because I'm involved in the product process, all of it as well, um, is just this sort of intersect, the, the art and science of it, and the sort of ability to kind of understand how content product will intersect with culture at a given moment, both from a gut understanding perspective of what's happening in the culture, but then also from a sort of data analytics and detail and kind of more scientific perspective. I, I like the bridge of those two things. And I have to say, I love being part of a team. I mean, I wish I'd done a team sport as a child. Gymnastics is intensely sure. individualistic. Individual, and we yeah. pretend there's team medals, but no one cares about the team medal. It's a, and so I do really love being part of a team and I would want that for my kids in sport to be part speak, of the team. Speak, speaking of kids, your mom of four, you know, is it kind of like back to, you've had such an incredible kind of path in these 51 years, as you said, how much has that impacted your mothering style and how much has mothering impacted your you know, senior executive style? Oh, that's a, not a five minute question. Wow. Yeah, I got four kids and they're a wide range of ages, 19, 17, five and three. So, you know, I'm kind of mothering all stages right now. Yes. Um, I don't even know how to answer that. I, I will answer from a parent perspective. One of the things I've had, I've, I've had the good fortune to learn and understand is parenting kids of various ages. What you're really doing as a parent, and I say this to people with young children, is you're trying to, 
you know, obviously send good people into the world, but you're, all of this is foundational for building a relationship with your children as adults, right? Like all yeah. the shit we worry about, did 100%. he eat carrots before zucchini? Did he have an ice cream? Did he have, a, it's like, it doesn't matter, <laughs> right? You want to build sort of trust with your child so that when they are adults, which is the predominant relationship in your life with your child, they will be yes. adults is do you have that? Do you communicate? Do you trust each other? Do they still want to talk to you? I mean, how many people do you know that are our age? I mean, I'm a little older than you that don't even talk to their parents. Like yes, that's that a real tragedy. And so I, I, like, I like want to like the best thing of COVID is like, I just want to live with my parents. I love them so much on that. Now I got lucky because back to the old country, they were 20 when they had me. So we're like wow. friends, they're young. you know, like, yeah, we're like friends. Yeah, they're young. But yeah, I mean, and so I, I'm in it for the long haul, which I guess I, informs the way I relate to all people and try to bring a bit of humanity and treat everybody with respect. I treated my children like they were grown up adults that could make their own decisions from the time they were little. That didn't mean they couldn't, you know, mess up. But, I, you know, I look, I've gone through layoffs, I've fired people, I have good relationships with all of the, all, every, all of those people, because you treat people with dignity and respect and humanity. And that's how you build a team. And I think I try to just be a real person, whether it's as a mom or as a leader, or as a member of the team. And I allow the sort of full picture of who I am to be seen, which I think sets people at ease and allows them to do that as well. I mean, that's sort of how I, I don't know that I, I even think that. about it that much. It's just what I do. <laughs> In the last three minutes here, I'm desperately interested in your backdrop. I, you just have a whole lot going on there and I'm fired up. I wanna know everything right now. I feel like I need to go through it carefully. I, can, I feel like I can flip one of those things on eBay for a profit. Like what's going on? That's I have a lot. I, I have a lot of books. Some people ask me if it's like one of those fake backdrops. This <laughs> is actually my house. Um, I'll say this. I so I, I am married. It's my second marriage, and I met my husband sort of later in life, and we were both avid readers. And so this is the sort of combined effort combined collection. Of, you know, forty three years of reading. Although we did have to kind of weed out the overlap, which of which there was a lot. Um, there was hence, a lot of, the hence the relationship makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there was a lot of Phil doubles of Philip Roth, for instance. So, um, so yeah, it's the combined efforts of a lifetime. Have you read? Have you read a lot during this time? You know what? I'm sort of. This is where I'm disappointed. I had like a run for the last year of reading a ton, and during this time, I've not. No, which I'm sort of disappointed. <laughs> and do you believe that's because the nature of your job, whether it was travel or commute or things of that nature, actually was conducive to reading and this new environment's less conducive? That's a good point. I hadn't thought of it. I definitely read on planes, but I think my brain was just having trouble kind of focusing. It was so kind of so much upheaval at yeah. first. And yeah. I was reading sort of serious, intense books and I would try to, and I, I, was like, I just can't, you know. It was, I, it was intensity on top of intensity. I was like, uh-uh, no more. I'm going to watch some dumb television. Um, has dumb television, has that been a great outlet for you? Have the escapism, like, is that, do you use dumb television? Is it sport? Is it music? What, what have you used as escapism? Exercise, exercise. Oh, good for you. Yeah, uh, dumb television, I also don't have much patience with. I'm not good with dumb content in general. So even when I kind of tune in, I am watching pretty serious, heavy stuff, but exercise has been my saving grace. Um, it just creates sanity. Well, listen, so. I'm a pretty good read of consumer behavior. I have a feeling you've just made an ungodly amount of fans. This was super exciting for me. I'm really glad we connected. I wish you nothing but the best. Continue well, success. thank you. That's yeah. kind. Thanks so much. Yeah, of course. Nice Take to talk care. to you. Bye. Thank you, Jen. Next up, we're going to talk about news and fake news. 
we're lucky to have Alan Miller, founder and CEO of the News Literacy Project. Alan comes from an amazing career in journalism, including 21 years at the Los Angeles Times, where he received a Pulitzer Prize for national reporting, more than a dozen other national and state reporting honors. The News Literacy Project provides resources and tools to teach teenagers how to discern fact from fiction in the digital age. For more than 19,000 educators in all 50 states and 108 other countries. Welcome, Alan. Good to be with you. Alan, it's a real pleasure. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Gary. It's a pleasure to be with you and with your audience. Thank you. Why don't you give some context to the audience? I think, you know, this might be the first time they're hearing of this project. Uh, I've been aware of it and admire and I'm glad we, we have you here. So why don't you just think the, uh, the origin stories of it? So um, well, one thing I want to say, I know, Gary, that you are a great example and a great proponent of entrepreneurism. So you might say I'm a different kind of entrepreneur. I'm a social entrepreneur. And what it is that I'm selling is to create a public that is better equipped to sort fact from fiction. And the, my product that we're using to do so are the tools and resources that we create to help people know what news and information to trust and share. Alan, you know what's funny? I'm sorry to interrupt you, but you're my favorite kind of entrepreneur and I aspire to be at that level. I enjoy entrepreneurship, but over the last decade, I've transformed into trying to teach people about the kindness and empathy and that you don't have to like destroy everybody else and the world's abundant. I've taken on almost more of a PSA, a pr you know, kind of public announcing kind of standpoint. And I think what you're selling, what you're, what you're embarking on, especially if people are into technology and understand what deep fake video technology is like there may not be a more important entrepreneurial venture going on in the world right now and i, I commend you for that and i admire you very much in your entrepreneurial venture thank you i appreciate that and you know for us the bottom line is to see people of all backgrounds having the ability to be well informed and fully engaged participants in their communities in the country and you would ask me about sort of how this all began. I'm happy to share sort of the origin Please. story with you. Um, I was at the Los Angeles Times doing investigative reporting in the Washington Bureau in 2006. And I was invited to speak to 175 sixth graders at my daughter's middle school about what I did as a journalist and why it mattered. And I passed the first test that morning when Julia gave me a hug because she was absolutely certain I would totally embarrass her. And as I was leaving that day, I found myself thinking, you know, this is a long way from investigative reporting, but if a lot of journalists brought their expertise and experience to bear in America's classrooms, it could be truly meaningful. And I was already concerned about two things. One was how Julia was accessing and evaluating the tsunami of sources of information of such varying credibility and accountability and transparency. And the other was the collapse of the business model for newspapers mm -hmm. in particular. That's and right and the wrenching transition that was underway and whether there would continue to be an appreciation and demand for the kind of quality journalism to which I, I and many others have dedicated our careers. So that was the, the seeds of what has subsequently become the News Literacy Project and led to me helping to found this field. I apologize and for interrupting you, Alan, but I just know the audience quite well. Just wanna go back for one second and I'll let you finish. Sure. How, um, you know, just knowing your career and knowing the timing and knowing that I was one of the people talking about 15 years ago of like, hey, like the internet's gonna be a real thing for this world, please pay attention. How did you find yourself being at the top of your class for say, your craft in this uh, environment? How emotional was the transition to recognizing that the business model of the newspaper 
was changing, that you were in this moment in time, that your heroes growing up did not have to go through that. They got to see their whole career through. Were you able to emotionally let go and readjust? Clearly at some level you have been. I think that just can help a lot of people. So that's why I'm zeroing in on that. How was that transition of realization of like, it doesn't matter what my ideology on this is, this is happening. So to me, journalism always, was always a calling. You know, it was something I did from the sixth grade on. And by the time I finished graduate school, I'd done four internships. And it was something that I was deeply proud of in terms of my career. I saw starting NLP as kind of a second journalistic calling. Uh, initially, I felt like I was moving from the supply side to the demand side. But very quickly, I saw that we were really teaching uh, such a fundamental and broadly applicable critical thinking skill that really was a key to preserving democracy, as well as equipping the next generation to navigate this challenging information ecosystem. So I actually, Gary, I, I felt blessed. I was at the Los Angeles you saw Times. The you saw the opportunity. I saw the need and the opportunity. I was also at the Los Angeles Times, which was really the canary in the mine shaft of American journalism. And so 100%. I saw the changes that were, were coming there. We're going to make it much more challenging for me to do the kind of long form, deep dive investigative reporting I did. And it just seemed like the right time to make that transition and to a second you know, major life mission for me. I love that. So what, what do people that are watching right now need to know about uh, what you're up to and, and why it's so important? Sure. So let me just, first of all, for, for, your, for the audience, tell you what Please. the News Literacy Project is. Please. And then I'll talk about the importance. So we are a national nonpartisan nonprofit that creates uh, resources and programs for educators and the general public to teach, learn, and share the skills to be informed consumers of news and information and engaged participants in democracy. And we feel that this is an essential life skill uh, in today's information landscape because we are living in what should be a digital golden age, you know, with more credible and valuable information readily available to us than any time in our history, but it's really being turned against us by a tsunami of misinformation that inflames us and exploits us and divides us. And that has never been more apparent than it is at this moment amid the pandemic and the Black Lives Matter protests and the election where the proliferation of conspiracy theories and hoaxes and viral rumors not only threaten to undermine the public life of the country, but our public health as well. So we're at a time when misinformation is literally a matter of life and death, and our mission has never been more urgent. Do you think people um, are underestimating how much is at stake? Well, you know, I think there's a, there's, there's a growing awareness. Um, I think when we, what we learned so much in the wake of the 2016 election about what was happening on the social media platforms, the amount of kind of toxic information yep. and hate. We learned about the Russian disinformation campaign. In some ways, I felt like we went from being a bit of a voice in the wilderness to an answer to a prayer in terms of the kind of response we got from educators, from the public, from the media, from donors. So I think there is greater, there is greater awareness. What I think people may not appreciate is um, their role in this information. I, I love you right now. Uh, I, I'm sorry to interrupt because uh, I get excited. Uh, talk to me about personal responsibility. I, I'm, this is probably the, like, the amazing ability of human beings to not be interested in accountability at all costs is the insight that I've been sleeping on for a decade. 
and obviously now it's gotten bigger stakes. So I think that, you know, the backdrop obviously is, uh, you know, our hyper-partisan age where we yes, tend sir. to be driven into our filter bubbles to see all news and information through prisms of red and blue. And Alan, and I apologize because I'm the worst, but, and I, but I loved history. It was the only class I loved and I'm not going to miss this opportunity to have you. You what your opinion on how this factors against, let's say 1968, your personal opinion, just one man's opinion on I think every one of us know, whether you're left or you're right, that we are pretty spread apart right now. Just a little history lesson from a very credible opinion, which is why I'm asking, where do you put this in the context to that era where it was pretty um, intense then too? No doubt. I, I think the biggest change is, is the transformation by, caused by the internet and, and digital media. You know, on the one hand, it's created far more information and far more voices in the virtual public square, which is a great thing but it's also allowed everybody to in fact be their own publisher with no guardrails, no standards, no accountability, and some often no transparency. So I think that this has added a whole other dimension to the heightened, you know, the intensity of people's feelings about politics and our public life and made this more challenging in terms of how we uh, combat it. And that's why I, where I started to get to the issue of, of personal responsibility. Um, you know, I think the, the misinformation cannot get the kind of virality it gets and have the, have the traction without many of us spreading it. I think often, uh, maybe sometimes knowingly, but I think more often inadvertently. And this is a kind, another kind of virus. And in effect, we are, you know, we are infecting our families and our friends and others in the process. So this is where I think, Gary, I mean, it reminds me of the classic Pogo cartoon, you know, we've met the enemy and he is us. Uh, but this is something, you know, we all can do about this. We can take steps right now um, to be more responsible about what we consume and what we share. Alan, I, and, something I've said for a long time has been, look, everybody wants to say that technology has changed us. I genuinely have always believed that it's exposing us and when I hear you say that, it kind of gave me my chills. I'm like, man, I've really been on this kick for a long time. Like people love to not be accountable about this. So Gary, I really appreciate that we are kindred spirits here. Um, me too. So, I, you know, I think that people, we need to see a sea change in the sense of personal responsibility around the way people consume and share news and information, much like we've seen around issues like drunk driving and littering and smoking. I, mean, I like that. People, people need to say, you know, misinformation stops with me. You know, friends don't let friends share misinformation. And when I see something or read something or hear something, I'm going to sanitize before I share. I'm going to practice good information hygiene and ask myself, you know, check the source. Can I tell who created this? And is this credible? And is there evidence? And is this intended to inform or to inflame? Check your emotions. If it's making you angry or fearful or sad, that's often when we drop our critical thinking skills. And misinformation is also designed to play on our emotions. You know, check whether anybody else has written about or commented on what's been posted either in the comments or other media. Uh, get a wide variety of sources. Check things over time. Truth is often provisional. It takes time to emerge. And then, you know, push back against people who are sharing things they shouldn't share or posting things they shouldn't share. I think, you know, we Alan, all need to real, become real up quick, standards for facts. Real quick, I mean, I, I think 
what I'm trying to, as you're talking, what, what's going through my mind is people believe they're doing that because they, they are getting affirmation of things they believe depend, because we've gone to a, such a hyper-politicized structure. The whole time you were talking, I'm like, what's gonna be the trigger point to the aha moment, right? Because that, that's how these things have historically played out, often detrimentally. Um, but to me, I'm spending a lot of time on like, what's going to be that, that trigger? Because usually these things stretch even further before they come back together. Well, you know, I think that it's, uh, first of all, I think there is probably needs to be, go back to a question you asked earlier, greater awareness yep. of how uh, damaging uh, this the misinformation is uh, to our public life and public health, and also the role that each of, each of us plays in that. I think that for an awful lot of people, they may well be sharing things inadvertently, whether they're doing it, um, some cases they may believe it, in other cases it may be to get likes and clicks and retweets and affirmation online. Selfish, selfish, um, selfish. Or just because they see something and say, this is amazing, or can you believe this, or this is funny, and they pass it on without recognizing that it's doing damage, you know, that it's doing, that it's doing harm. So, you know, I recently came across a quote from uh, Eric Seidel, the champion poker player who's in the Poker Hall of Fame, where it's his motto on poker, uh, less certainty, more inquiry. And I think that's a great mantra for how we share and consume news and information, that we should be less certain about what we're seeing and inquire more before we share or act on it. I also think that within that, the organizations themselves, unfortunately, because of the dynamic shifts, have also subconsciously, I would argue, been in a place where a headline or an execution around content is selfish to the short term revenue generator. And, and I think this is a collective, this is on an individual basis, but on an organizational level, we need to really think about that. And I also think that when you layer the hyper nature of what we're seeing between people either selling fear or selling shame depending on what side it is, is creating a very difficult scenario for most of the humans on an individual basis. Indeed. Yes, I agree. If I, I know we don't have a lot of time, Gary. So if I, I, I want to invite people to, to join us in trying to create you know, a, 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 a future founded on facts. Um, and you can learn more at newslit.org. You can see our virtual classroom at checkology.org. Um, you can get more information at info at the news at the newslit. Org, and we have an app called Informable that you can find at Google Play and the, and, uh, the App Store that you can download. And we would love your participation and support. Alan, this was the most enjoyable moment of the seven weeks for me personally, for one reason, to watch a renowned journalist in the way that like business world looks at that, throw the hardest right hooks and promotion schedule down the last 30 <laughs> seconds of the spot has been the, you, my friend, you are absolutely an entrepreneur. And by the way, Andre, please connect us in real life. I'd like to speak to you, Alan. I've got some uh, ideas of how I can help. Great, Gary. Thank you so Thank much. You soon. Real pleasure. Okay. Real pleasure for me. For me too. Thank you, Alan. Up next, we've got Thomas Renice, who is relatively new at Uber as the VP of Global Marketing. Thomas joined Uber after 10 years at Google, where he launched the Google Pixel and rebranded Google Nest, among many other things. Before Google, Thomas was the first CMO of the state of New York, driving the I Love New York program. Thomas, we're super fired up to have you. 
Awesome. Nice to be here. And that's a hard act to follow. <laughs> You're going to follow it though, brother. I have a lot of admiration for you. We haven't had too much interacting through our years, but I'm really excited to have you here. And I, I really do admire a lot of your work. Same. Thank you. Great Thank to you. be here. Why don't you, why don't we set the foundation for context? Just a little personal stuff. Share a bit about yourself. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, I think uh, Andrea, who I've known for many years, I think sum summarized it well. Um, I've had a pretty, pretty unconventional past. I often wonder, how, how did I get into marketing? What am I doing here? <laughs> um, I've done lots of different things in my career, from wanting to be an aspiring actor as a kid to, um, to spending a long time actually in policy and government. I've worked at every level of government, city, state, and, and federal, uh, including a stint in the Clinton administration. Um, and also worked for Elliot Spitzer when I was the first uh, uh, CMO for the state of New York. Didn't know that the I Love New York brand was a state campaign and a state asset. As a kid who grew up in Brooklyn, that was actually the eye-opening thing when I sat down with the administration to hear, wow, the state owns the brand. Like, what can we do with that? It's pretty exciting. Um, you know, I've, I went to the dark side. I've worked at McKinsey and in banking. <laughs> And then, um, and then, you know, what's, I the, really big, what's the biggest thing? You, what's the biggest thing you learned from those kind of hardcore institutions? Oh, you know that um, you can do anything if you break a problem down into its pieces. Mm -hmm. I think the McKinsey training was actually some of the most painful years of my lives, with some of the most incredible learnings. Um, and there's sort of a, an arrogance, if you want to call it that, at McKinsey of like we can solve any problem because if you apply the rigor and break things down to its pieces and then figure out how to tackle them. You actually could solve almost anything. Do you feel that it breaks down on the humanity side? Because that's always been my observation in looking at McKinsey, which I admire so much. The process is right, but so is the process of playing basketball perfectly. The problem is not everybody's LeBron James. Yeah. Well, I think the challenge you have, and like one of my learnings from having been both in the public and private sectors is in some ways the private sector is a whole lot easier because the what you're optimizing for is pretty clear and measurable. Usually it's some sort of business result. Whereas in the, in the, in the public sector, there are just, you know, there's so many stakeholders and confounding interests and it's really not clear what success looks like or how you measure it. And I think that's I mean, what makes I mean, uh, by the way, you just, can somebody clip that for me? Cause that just sums up my life. <laughs> everything I try to talk about from, I mean, that's, that's what an entrepreneur's life that has always run family businesses that the health of your well-being is based on the health of the business, working with Fortune 5,000 companies, which is the antithesis of that to, your, to the way that you just recapped it. But I have to say that training as well, being in government is incredible for being in business, particularly in these days, because like it's about managing stakeholders. Frankly, the bottom line is getting redefined and the role of brands and businesses in the community and society and policy, I think has evolved a ton. And, and it's, you know, it's true brands and businesses can play a strong role in positive change. Like, so I think this whole conversation is actually coming around, which is why actually now that I look back at my career, I'm like, I, I've, I feel really fortunate to have done some really interesting things and it followed my heart and glad I didn't take that linear path um, because I've got a lot more interesting experiences to draw on for the work that I'm doing today, which, which is great. So yeah, so, so I spent a decade at Google, was really attracted to, to the, the leadership of the company and the mission and the power of Google. I joined when it was a whole lot smaller than it was today. It was 20,000 people. Um, and it felt still like it had that startup energy and changed the world and did some really interesting things. I was the first head of strategy. I was the first, um, I was the founder of the brand studio. I was the first person to run marketing for hardware before we even ha had a hardware business. Cool. Um, I had some really exciting uh, adventures there. And then, um, you know, I jumped ship to join Uber about 10 months ago, which feels like 10 years ago, having lived through the pandemic and living through yeah, this time Yeah, I mean, what now. timing, right? 
Um, but I have to say, you know, it's a, it's not a, it's not, wasn't a natural decision for me to, to join Uber. I'll say, you know, when they called me, I said, I'm not sure you want me to leave marketing. I was one of the folks who joined the lead Uber in the heyday. Um, but I really came to respect Dara and the fact that the company is not the company that it was. Um, and it could be a really powerful force for good. And talk about bringing public and private interests together. Oh, Imagine the, 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 infa the infrastructure that Uber has in place and Lyft and, and, and just the general infrastructure is extraordinary. And, uh, and to your point, things evolve tremendously over time. Yeah, we have new leadership. I think we have the right leadership. I think it's a company that has, had its, had, has learned many lessons from its past, let's just say that. And if you could imagine the like leveraging the reach and the power and frankly the brashness and the boldness of what you think of Uber, imagine leveraging that to redefine work, leveraging that to get cities to be more sustainable, leveraging that to fight the pandemic. Like that's kind of the company and the brand you want to be taking on these world problems. And so how do we harness that energy and that intent, which I do believe is is in the company. Have you uh have you interacted with Travis Freeman yet? No. All right. Uh, former executive uh, at Vayner who, who's there. So Travis, my Travis, sorry. Yeah, I thought, you're Travis, okay, I'm, I'm thinking, sorry. I was, thinking, I, was thinking, I was thinking infamous Travis and I just went no, no, there. No, 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 I'm sorry, not Travis Kalkinick. My Travis, your Travis, yes, yes. love Travis. Got it, okay. I was like, man, how the hell did they no. not interact yet? I guess this COVID thing is crazy. Interact, I am like, I am like so- Every day, right? I figured, I, I figured. <laughs> sorry. No problem, no worries Call at all. To Travis, who I'm sure is listening or we've been <laughs> he's like one of the best hires I've ever made. He's the best dude of all time. I'm sure he, if he was if he's watching, if he's not busy, he was like, "What the hell?" <laughs> <laughs> exactly. No, Travis is. Talk a, to me. Talk to me about. Talk to me about. Ten months in, a lot of people can relate to this. Ten months into a new gig, you're just getting your feet underneath you. Boom, the probably the biggest single event that any of us have gone through in uh, in our careers, and for some people, our lives. How difficult was that? Obviously, Uber itself, in its core business, was you know some businesses have flourished during this time. This is a real challenge for Uber's core business. Obviously we see the, uh, the, the Postmates news and different things like what, give, give us a little 411 on the chaos and, and maybe some insights that might be able to help other people that are going through chaos or one day will. Yeah, good question. Well, in some ways Uber has been well-trained at crises. Right. Um, so it's a company that actually goes into its, its like into its best mode when a crisis hits. I have to say, it's an incredibly rigorous operational company, um, and so we actually organized and scenario planned well in February before things kind of really were clear where they were heading. I mean, I was still keeping travel on the books till the end of March thinking, yeah. I'm gonna go to India in April, I'm still going. Oh, I had this, <laughs> I had this so wrong. I was like, okay, if everything goes atrocious, and this was like in March, atrocious, we'll all definitely be back by 4th of July. If it goes, that was my like catastrophic timing. So I, I can resonate with that. Go so, ahead. Yeah, we had a leadership, uh, company-wide leadership summit planned in person in February and Dara called it off, but said, you know, those who are still willing to travel should, and a small group of us came together over three full days, um, every function of the company represented in about a group of 40 people to really think through what does this mean? What are the different ways this could play out? And frankly, what's our role? Like what, how should we show up in this? You know, and, and this was actually the moment where the light bulb went off for me as the, as the brand guy of like, we have such reach and we're, we're, we're essential service. And before the term essential was kind of becoming more talked about, like, you know, people rely on us for basic transportation and work every single day in, you know, 10,000 cities around the world. So we have an ultimate responsibility to show up in a way that 
assures people that we're there for them and they need us, assures them they can help them move safely, but also partners with governments to make sure we're getting the right information out. Um, and in many ways we are, you could say like, you know, we're, we're a basic service. And so it, I coined the term early that this is an opportunity for us and a need for us to show up like a citizen leader. You know, we're, we need to be a leader as a brand and as a company of our size, but we also need to be a citizen and really be part of the communities and cities that we're working in and the countries and really figure out how to help address the virus. And so, you know, some principles like let's stay close to government authorities and make sure that we're communicating what the health authorities are communicating, make sure we're keeping the business open where we're essential, but also really frankly, urging people not to ride if that's what's clear to clearly gonna stop the virus. Um, and so it became a kind of a moment to articulate those values and to do what Dara has urged the company to do since she joined is to do the right thing. And really not, not just think about the business, but think about the people in the community. Speaking of which, this is a good transition. Thank you for not riding with Uber. That very much yeah. caught my attention. Please explain <laughs> that and maybe that, maybe you can connect those two dots. Sure, yeah, so taking everything I just said, I mean, we actually very early put a lot of um, health authority information into our app because you know people were going to our app in, on a regular basis. And so communicating what the authorities were telling the, the cities and the, and the countries that we're in in terms of what's safe and how they should operate, how should they move. So we were very early to do that. In fact, we put some messaging pretty early in our app that said flatten the curve, you know, only ride if you need to. So encouraging people to just think twice. And so then we came up with this idea to, to communicate that message more broadly because it was obvious that what we needed to do to address the virus is just stop movement. And what better company and brand to tell people to stop move than the movement brand, the company that's always stood for movement. So you might argue it could have been a career limiting move to have the first campaign I go to Dara to ask for is like, can we run an ad that says, don't ride our product? <laughs> um, and we did, um, you know, and he definitely paused. He's like, are you sure we really want to say that on television? Um, but it was the right thing to say and it felt like the responsible thing to do and frankly had that kind of response um, that I think you had, which is it stopped people to realize actually it must be a really important message to come from Uber it is not in our interest to actually be saying that. Big shout out to Jim Davis for the kind words of this show, giving you some love, Thomas, and the others. Hashtag marketing for them now. If you've got insights, quotes, things of that nature, we love watching you all on Twitter. Thomas, what about, what about the speed in which we all have to navigate now? Um, you, you come from a background that I think, especially in Google times, like speed was a variable, hence to your point, even it was 20,000, it, it was still a very fast company. Do you feel that the Zooms, Google Hangouts, Slacks, email, text, like, do you think the infrastructure from remote working is actually leading to more speed? I do. I mean, I've been calling the work that we've been doing, and Travis and I talk about this as real-time marketing. I mean, there's never been more real-time marketing than the last, you know, four or so months. Um, I mean, you know, the spot that we just referred to, thank you, thank you, riders, we created in three days. We're running a spot now, no mask, no ride. Uh, also, I think a really important message. And so while we're open for business, we want people to realize a mask actually not just keeps you safe, it keeps everyone around you safe. And frankly, we need to keep our drivers safe. Yeah. Um, and so, and we created that spot in three days as well. So like, and it. so for the first few months, we were doing focus groups three days a week, every week in every country, because we just needed to stay close to kind of how things were changing, how people were perceiving things. And we're still trying to stay, keep our pulse on things because this is evolving in, in ways that are just unprecedented. 
And so doing work, being responsive, we've pivoted. I mean, we were ready to run the no mask spot the week of the uh, Black Lives Matter protests that occurred. And so we quickly pivoted and said, that's not the right message right now. Put that on the shelf. Sure. You don't know when we'll run that. And then we pivoted back as the debate has kind of raged up around yeah. mass. So like, yeah. I mean, it's, it, and like we're looking out a few months, but I don't, I don't feel like I can look out more than eight weeks without any real sense of like what we should be doing. Tapping into your uncomfortable likability that you're possessing here on this interview. <laughs> I'm just genuinely curious about you, the dude. Uh, any behavioral shifts from you that you're most intrigued by? New shows, new apps, oh. uh, new, buying something new direct to consumer that you never thought you would and now you can never go back. Anything hit your radar if you're self-evaluating? I like that you're looking out to yonder, so you're thinking. And, you know, any anything that really stands out to you about maybe a new consumer trend from you, maybe a new OTT platform, maybe uh, the way you consume news, Any anything stand out? It's so funny. If anything, my, my mind quickly goes to, to, to the human things that I'm doing and doing more regularly, like like going to walk the dog in the park every morning, despite the stress of the day that's about to come. Has that been dinner. just, a, has that been a wonderful addition to your life? having dinner at the dinner the dinner table, not the kitchen right. counter with my partner right. every day with proper table, like not tablecloth. <laughs> but just like, like a proper sit down. Settings, yeah. Not using our hands to eat more, you know? Like, so like actually those moments have been the more memorable. My partner is shopping online more than I'd like. So like, we've got too much cardboard in the recycling. I keep complaining about that. So he's leaned into that behavior. Um, but I have to say it's been more trying to embrace the human connections in this and reaching out to friends and family that I haven't talked to and in a long time, actually that's been sort of more memorable to me um, than some of the technology that I, maybe I've always used or just I'm a slow adopter to. Well, the the affirmation to your incredible likability has been confirmed on Twitter. <laughs> I knew it, I was feeling it. Uh, and uh, I will be texting Travis right now to make sure we get to chop up and spend some time together. I really appreciate you and your insights and I wish you nothing but health. Thanks for having me. Good luck, Thanks. bye. Thank you, Thomas. So next up, we've got another badass, Lockie Andrews, who is not only the chief information officer, she's also the chief digital officer of Untuck It. She oversees the omni-channel experience, marketing, retail, e-commerce, and operations. Previously, Lockie also worked with a number of high growth companies, including Nike and Lane Bryant on their digital strategy. And she's just launched something called the Black 100. It's an initiative to increase board participation of black professionals at Fortune 1000 companies. And we're looking forward to hearing more about that. Thanks so much, Lockie, for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thank you so much. Lockie, it's good to see you again. It's good to see you, Gary. Have you been? I'm good, I'm good, as, as good as one can be. <laughs> Respect. Why don't you give some context to everybody about your origin story? I call it comic book number one. Like, who is Lockie? And then we'll go into stuff I really wanna get into Black 100. Sure, sure. Um, it's been a, a wild ride. I'm a, more of a generalist in background. I was a reformed uh, investment banker. I think Musa talked about that a little bit earlier. Uh, but Take, really, Lockie, I apologize for interrupting. Take me even further back. Where were you born? What kind of kid were you? Ah, I love it. I'm yeah, born and raised in Philadelphia. Um, so I don't know how many you're familiar with Philly. Lovely. I'm so by the way, in, by the way, I'm obsessed with Philly. I actually, yeah, I actually think this is, I'm gonna get some razz on this, but I actually think Philly is more New York than New York in a lot of ways, like the way people perceive it. I just think the grit in Philly is very real. Uh, I'm a fan, go ahead. 
A hundred percent. And that really used to buy my story. There you go. It's about grit, hard work, the hustle, but still family focused. So I um, went to Georgetown, which was amazing. So I went to DC and then uh, decided to work on Wall Street. And so that's where I thought I wanted to go, but quickly realized that the people across the table from me were actually having more fun. So knowing that I needed to go figure out how a person like myself could fit into this crazy corporate world, uh, I used the time at business school. I went to Harvard Business School to understand how someone who's left and right brain could actually leverage skills and be unique. And I, I lucked up in having a, a great internship with Domenico De Sole and Tom Ford in London at Gucci. And Domenico said to me, look, if you can figure out how to commercialize creativity, that is something that very few people do. And so it was that encouragement that has led me down this incredible windy path, but that windy path has put me right exactly where I needed to be. Where did that windy path start? What was the first professional move off of that moment? Um, I decided to go to a startup because I knew I'd be able to learn a lot at a startup. I wanted to go to retail, fashion. I liked that, that aspect of creativity and commercialization. So in six years, I worked at a company called Baby Style. I don't know if you remember it. I do. But on the left coast, yeah, awesome. It was a great brand, ultimately sold to, to Right Start. But I was able to learn everything about how to create a widget. And that then led me to great opportunities. I became the COO of a fashion brand and in charge of marketing. I helped them make a huge splash and get their first, uh, first Mercedes-Benz fashion show, which was pretty incredible, but then ultimately fell in with the private equity. So kind of that, that Wall Street mentality I still had. And working with private equity-backed companies allowed me to develop my growth hacking skills, but it unfortunately turned into the Great Recession. So I was on the road 275 right. days out of the year. That was in intense as an operating partner. But it's where I was able to cut my teeth. And I got an opportunity to separate the signals from the noise and working with many different portfolio companies. And now looking back, it makes total sense. Uh, the role at Untucket is a combination and a culmination of everything that I did before. So it's been a really wild but circuitous route to kind of lead me right back to where I needed to be. Speaking of which, because I, I know the story really well because the founder dabbled in the wine space and I'm, I'm Jersey born, yeah. so I know a lot of that stuff. Um, that, that math based, to your point, performance, Wall Street, with a product that has so much permission to build a brand, how much do you enjoy going light, left brain, right brain, math, art? Like, is that something that comes natural to you? Is that something that from a branding standpoint, knowing that it's an organization that has a lot of performance marketing DNA, is it, is it hard to get brand conversation? Like what, what's kind of the under the hood a little bit for all the marketers that are watching? Sure, sure. So in this, this wonderful digital age that we're living in, I think when I met Untucket, uh, they had the Shopify experience, which is phenomenal. I know you're a fan of Shopify. Yep. Yep. Uh, and as well as QuickBooks and Excel. And that was the extent of the tech stack <laughs> at that right. point in time. So my role is really being that bridge between the marketing side as well as the operational side and making that glue work and leveraging the technologies that we have. So from a marketing perspective, there's 5,000 companies in the marketing tech stack landscape. I know you know that. Mm -hmm. It's 
really hard to understand which of those technologies can help a brand scale. And one of the things that I can do quite well is understand product categories, trends, understanding those consumer bases, and then leveraging the right technology stack to allow us to be agile, to build out. And we did all of this in two and a half years, which is kind of insane. When we look back at it, it was a really quick build to get to this next generation tech stack, but now it works. And we're actually able to double down and do things that the big guys, right? The best fives, the Walmarts, the Amazons, we have personalization at scale, which is amazing through the partners that we've started to work with. But I'm, I'm very fluent in the math and the technical side and therefore working with the creatives and making sure we're pulling in those right technologies so that we can get to hyperscale without spending lots and lots of money because we're venture capital back. Talk to me about what happens. This hits, COVID hits, you have this crazy leadership position. You've got your whole plan. I'm sure, you know, even just listening to, you know, you don't get to Georgetown by accident. You're, you're clearly, you know, very bright and, and, and process and understood how to, like I'm an entrepreneur because I was bad at school. I didn't know how to play in that process. You've got both. So you've got your plan. Where do you, how did you, how did you personally, talk to me about the best thing and maybe even the thing that you most, missed the mark on? Because I think humility and like just showing people even incredible executives like you, like, like, did you think it was gonna be so short so you did this? Did you stop media and then realized, oh crap, the media is so underpriced. Like, talk to me about those first two to three weeks. How did you deal with COVID? Well, fortunately, you know, I had been through the Great Recession and so right. working with companies and helping them. So for me, it was that pattern recognition that though COVID was completely different than the Great Recession, there were principles that were the same. And so we as an organization banded together very quickly and did all the things. I wrote an article on this of, you know, this is feeling just like 2007, 2008, but obviously it's quite different and there's health concerns. So for, for me, you know, it was going into it not being fearful. I had seen this before. And so from a leadership style, it was really important for me and the teams to just come together and communicate, right? We communicated through this. That was the secret sauce. Mm. Um, some people had never seen that. We have lots of millennials that work in our company. They, this was new for them. And so in understanding what we need to do and being very clear, even though we all have fear, right? We didn't know that people would still be buying shirts in the thick of this. You know, we're based in New York City, the epicenter. But the good news is we did all the unsexy work before. We talked about foundations before. Uh, I'd say from a humility perspective, I've learned that we actually should have done more of that. It's the stuff that you don't get credit for that we got caught, right? That we hadn't completed certain things because we thought we had time. And then COVID hit and we realized, look, we've got to get curbside. <laughs> we have to launch that initiative. This is important for our consumers. It's important for our sales associates. They're our front line. So we did all that work. And I'm so proud of the team because we were able to pull together and we launched technologies during that time, which we, I never thought we would have been able to do. But because we had that flexible infrastructure, we were able to bolt on capabilities so that we could deliver these things in real time, which was pretty amazing. Let's talk about Black 100. Sure. It's, it's definitely my passion project. <laughs> so thank you Good for asking you. about it. Of course. But, um, I, I felt uh, sitting in this privileged position, you know, I sit in very privileged circles. And uh, because I'm one, usually one of the only few African Americans and sometimes typically the only female, uh, I, I started to notice that there was an outpouring of support, which I'm really grateful for, but uh, I'm on five different task force <laughs> about racial equity. 
and it was a light bulb moment because I realized that, wow, with this much interest and with this many people who want to support us, we can do amazing things. We can actually turn this moment into a movement. And so what the Black 100 is, which is quite simple, actually, in its charge, uh, the idea is let's band together, let's form a, a collaboration and a collective and actually make some real significant change. So the idea is leveraging, you know, Harvard Business School is the base, I'm an officer of the HBS Club of New York. Can we pull our resources and our, our really wide networks to place 100 exceptionally qualified Black executives on Fortune 1000 company boards by the end of 2021? It is so simple. Such a narrow, a lot of times the narrow KPI enables it to actually happen. You got it, 100%. Uh, so everyone that I've spoken to, it's one of those, this is a no-brainer, why haven't we done this before? And part of it is because, look, we're applying business principles. We need to create a marketplace. We're going to leverage network effects. We need people within the Harvard Business School community, and there's lots of us out there globally, who are sitting on boards, who have influence. We appreciate the good sentiment and the goodwill, but let's do something. Refer talented Black people in your network. We're going to build this marketplace to align the supply of talent with the demand for talent. I've partnered with uh, Leadership Now Project, which is fantastic. They have a pledge of thousands of organizations and individuals who have said, we're going to do more about this. We want to do more. And this is the mechanism to allow them to do it. And so Lucky. aligning the supply and Lucky. the demand, we're the bridge. And we're going to leverage Harvard Business School from a training perspective to allow for professional development, board, resume writing, all the things that are necessary to make sure we close the gap on a 3% representation of Blacks on corporate 1,000 boards. Lucky, uh, one of the things I'm thinking a lot about I've always had an interesting spin on boards from, uh, obviously, this has been unprecedented times in the awakening of people on social issues, both between Me, Me Too and Black Lives Matter in a very short period of time in the context of American history. You know, I grew up, you know, I'm 44 and I grew up a very poor student, but felt I had a lot to contribute. And so I'm of the generation, ironically, we probably share this and you kind of went the other way because you were great at it, which was, you know, Georgetown, Harvard, they became the badges that allowed people to win that game. When you were just talking, there was a couple of black young juggernauts of understanding the current state of consumer that went through my head that I said, they're not gonna hit the radar of this black 100 because they don't have that pedigree. And it's kind of like what happened in sports. All of a sudden, after four generations of 80 year old, 70 year old, head coaches, we've seen in a lot of sports, this extraordinary explosion in 32 and 34 year old coaches. I just want to personally like say, I'd love to have a combo with you because I might have a very unique point of view of people that might actually bring incredible value, though no Fortune 1000 board is going to look at it because they don't have the, 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 the mm -hmm. reps yet. I believe because the world has become so consumer centric and obviously the company you're at, you're gonna be able to dissect this. So I'd love to talk to you about that, maybe I offline. I love that. And I think there's do you see, be a lot Do you of see where I'm going with that? Because oh, I think- 100%. I think right now, rightfully, and this is what we should focus on, it should be about black lives and I think women and all that. But I also think that just different, you know, we talk a lot about different perspectives. I actually think the biggest thing that I see from my purview on these Fortune 1000 boards is everyone looks the same from the background of over highly educated, very operational 
but missing the mark on creativity and consumer-centric realities that is grossly missing at a lot of boards. I think you're right. And there's going to be a lot of surrogate mothers for this. And we want that, right? I want this to cascade out because it's just a start. But to your point, let's do something that's measurable. Let's show people that we can do this. We, we are not powerless to this. So let's move the needle forward. And I think we're going to have cascading effects. And let's extend this to management teams. Why don't we, right? Why don't we broaden into the Fortune 5000? I think there's going to be a lot that comes from it. I'm super excited. I'd love to chat about it. And I really appreciate your time on here and I wish you nothing but the best. Thank you so much, Gary. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thank you, Lockie. So we've got our last guest for today, Dina Bari. Dina serves as StockX CMO, a Detroit-based online resale marketplace. Dina has demonstrated a history of building beloved consumer brands, having served as a CMO for three other companies, including Birchbox. We're super excited to have you, Dina. Dina, how are you? Hello, great to see you all. It's just last to see you together on our happy hour. Yes, that's right. Well, let's get right into the thing I'm actually curious about. You've got a really epic background. What's what's on those shelves? Anything interesting? Anything? Oh can, my gosh! Anything I can flip so, on eBay? You would not believe how much commentary these bookshelves get. Um, the big joke is this was actually meant to be my husband. We moved to Detroit when I accepted this job, right? So we're six months, seven months into living in Michigan, moved from California, and we set up this office because my husband runs his own business and works from home. And it took me about four weeks to take over the office and the bookshelf. <laughs> there's everything in here from you know philosophy and yoga books to um, there's a book called Cabin Porn right behind me, um, and then all kinds of fiction from all stages of our lives. But this this is the ultimate conversation piece right here. How do you consider yourself? How do you view yourself as a leader? As since that's kind of the ethos of, of this, uh, like, yeah. and, and like all of us, we've all evolved and gotten better. What has been the biggest thing that you've closed the gap on in your career that you're just like happy? You're like, wow, I'm really glad I got better at this because had I not, I don't think I could be the leader I am today. Yeah. Well, there, I think there's two things. Um, and one of them, I'm going to echo what Lockie said just a little while ago, you know, the idea of being a thinker that can combine left and right parts of the brain. I think in marketing in particular, that is a very valuable skill um, and hard to find. So I think that is um, something that I would say describes my style, holistic thinker um, and somebody who likes to synthesize and integrate. Um, and then I think the other thing is just um, being empathetic, being um, a very like holistic person in the sense of like, look, we Do we lose her? Andre, do you, do you hear me? Yeah, I hear you. Okay. Dana, you're back. You're I think you're back. I'm back. Go ahead. Go ahead. Great. Sorry about that. No worries. Seeing. Okay. So um, I'll just backtrack a little bit. You know, the idea, I was talking about the idea of left and right brain thinking coming together and being an integrative thinker. And then um, being somebody who really appreciates and values the whole self being brought to work and, and I show up that way. I want my team to show up that way. And I think as leaders today, especially in this climate, it's so critically important and, and showing your team that that's what you believe in. That's what you support from them um, helps to bring out the best, um, the most creativity, the best results um, and the most present and committed work. What, um, what has really been the biggest observation you've had about being a leader during COVID? Because obviously some of us are fortunate enough 
I, I, it's funny how I just said that. It was like a little bit of a slip. Fortune, I was going to say fortunate enough to navigate through the Great Recession or 9-11 yeah. or things of that nature. And those are not fortunate things, but like I definitely felt that we were in a 10-year window where a lot of people were already at 32 years old in their career and had never been through anything but hyper growth. And I was like, man, one day this is going to hit. And so here we are. Thoughts on that? Yeah, totally. I'm a huge believer in the fact that um, the failures or the missteps or even the things that are outside of your control, like macro events, um, the challenges make you better. And, you know, having lived through the Great Recession, 9-11, even having joined a startup that was a total bust, you know, and literally went out of business, um, those things, I think, make us more resilient, more adaptable, more creative. And I think those are like critical skills in COVID-19, um, you know, marketing and business. So, you know, when I, I think about showing up for my team at StockX, the leadership team spends a lot of time making sure that we are keeping people together, keeping them connected. A lot of people are lonely, isolated, confused, you know, all the, all the negative feelings and, um, you know, work can play a role in, in combating that and leadership and teams can play a role in combating that. So that's, I think, one really important thread um, for our company and for me personally is just being there for my team. I think secondly is encouraging the adaptability, the growth mindset. Again, it's a, it's a basic uh, survival skill, right? You got to be able to land on your feet when unforeseen circumstances present themselves. And in marketing in particular, there are some very new real constraints. If you think about um, experiential marketing, content, these are these are areas that really have relied on the in real life experiences um, to create what they create. And suddenly those avenues are cut off. And so it's only the people who are open-minded, flexible, willing to adapt that can um, not only survive, but I think actually come up with better ideas. We've Our team has come up with new ways of working in this environment that I think we're gonna bring with us into the future, into the normal, when we return to normal. Um, you know thinking more creatively about how to um, generate content in a scalable way that reaches more people, um, taking events that might have been activated in real life and bringing them to a digital forum so that more people can participate. Like these are really valuable skills. So um, I think teams that are focused on being adaptable can actually grow through this. So I've had the great fortune of knowing Josh very early on, literally one of the great misses of my entrepreneurial investing career. Uh, I was not investing in StockX early on around <laughs> things that I love, like flipping and sneakers and now sports cards, which you know has super got me fired up. Yeah. Um, what I know is that you're sitting on some really fun information. Can you share anything about like what's been selling during this? Yes. Pandemic? And I'm gonna do Thank I'm you. gonna do a plug. <laughs> Because okay. we just published a media report, which has is like a goldmine of fun facts, but it's called the StockX Snapshot. It's our market movers, and we talk about and, things that Andrea, are- Andrea, I need that immediately, Andrea. Please, please, please <laughs> that should be in my yeah. inbox right now. Like, Amy, get on this. I need that now. Go ahead. So, um, you know, some fun facts, and I'm going to cheat and refer to it, but, um, you know, puzzles up almost 600%. Um, slides, because who's going, you know, who's going outside anymore, right? So up almost 400% masks, obviously up 300%, um, you know, slippers, again, a big mover, track pants, like all the stuff that we are wearing every day, right? And then um, 
I think the other thing that we've seen is a resurgence of what you might call classic silhouettes and sneaker. Like I think this is a time when people are maybe hesitant to splurge on that really luxury item that may or may not have enduring value, but you know, the classic silhouettes that have been relevant for 20 years that people are right. spending. Plus, plus, you know, for the people that don't collect and flip who actually wear these incredible, you know, just the dominance you have with sneakers, you know, look, let's call a spade a spade. For a lot of human beings, flexing with that impossible to get pair of off-whites when you go courtside to an NBA game is very much in the culture of this. And if you're not doing that, maybe you don't need to do that right this minute. A hundred percent. And I think the other thing is, you know, the last dance, like that has been an amazing influence in our world. Um, and it's this beautiful convergence, right? Because I think a lot of people, you know, we have such a diverse group, you know, obviously you and I can talk about this all day, explain even the, the last dance, what that sure, is. And sure, sure. So the last dance is this amazing documentary about Michael Jordan and the Bulls and their attempt to win um, their final um, championship, NBA championship. And it really talks about you know, the team, it talks about Michael Jordan, and it talks about um, his brand as well. And, and in sneakers, you know, his brand is a force, like potentially the biggest force to be reckoned with. And what we've seen, um, you know, actually HBO released this, pulled the release date up. It was meant to be released later on. And then when COVID um, came along and sports were canceled, I think they saw a big window. Um, again, sign of adaptability. So they released this early and it was at a time when there was nothing no, nothing to watch on, on TV for a sports fan. And so um, it was just brilliant timing and it was actually brilliant marketing for StockX. We were not involved. Um, I keep saying that would have been a dream, a dream relationship, dream partnership, but it still had this incredible effect of um, reintroducing people to Jordan brand shoes. And we've had some of our best ever days um, actually during this period, which is sort of hard to believe. You never would have predicted that right in April and we were all sitting at home and saying, what does this mean for business? Um, we've had records around certain silhouettes that were released in the past couple of months that have become our best ever sellers, fastest ever sellers. So I think it shows, you know, back to the trends question, like the power of enduring classics and in a time like this, when there's uncertainty and stress and, um, you know, recessionary forces, like people are spending money on the things that have proven, proven value. StockX has done a nice job with content series. Give everybody a little context to that content. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thanks for that plug. Um, we have an amazing team. And basically, you know, their remit is to tell stories that are relevant um, to our, you know, the products that we sell. So it's always contextualized in our world of sneakers, sort of culturally relevant products. And the people, the creators um, who use those products to express themselves. And so we have this whole network of um, influencers, musicians, athletes, all kinds of creators that we um, collaborate with to tell stories. And, and often the product plays a role in that. Sometimes it doesn't, but we do make an effort to bring it back so that it's um, related to what we're selling on the platform. And, um, you know, we use a mix of long form. We have these amazing, you know, almost historical pieces. We actually have someone on our content team who's a PhD. We have two PhDs and one of them is a rap and hip hop historian. And so he can write these amazing long form pieces about, you know, the history of sneakers through hip hop culture. Um, or we have other pieces that are more SEO oriented, meant to drive results, you know, all the shoes in the last dance, top 10 Jordan shoes. Sure. Um, and then we also have other forms, you know, video um, 
and we've been coming up with these more soundbite written forms lately um, to just hear what it's like to be a, a person, a creator in Barcelona, a creator in Toronto, you know, as we grow more globally and the community become, in many ways, COVID has, you know, shrunk our world because we're all alone more and at home more, but it's also expanded our world because we're online and we're, you know, the boundaries that previously existed for physical interactions have been raised. So, um, you know, we're trying to lean into that and introduce more of the cultural marketplace, the, the global marketplace that is StockX to our community. Um, and so we've come up with a few new conceits during this time. One of them is um, on the line with, which is that short format interview mm -hmm. with creators around the world. Mm -hmm. um, and we're gonna keep testing and experimenting. I think that's one thing that is very much part of our DNA as a startup um, and as a brand that's on the forefront of culture. Do, is do, you believe, things. do you believe that every brand should start thinking of themselves more in the production of content as a marketing execution, not just maker of commercials and ads? Yes, I think especially, in, so the world that I live in is direct-to-consumer. Um, you know, I've spent 15 years in, in direct-to-consumer startups. And um, I think when you're building that direct relationship with a consumer, you have to um, provide context. You have to engage them in a, in a deeper way than just the transactional way. Um, and content plays a huge role to show that you have a voice, you have a point of view, you have authority in the space, um, that you care about the issues the customer cares about. I think this is part of being a customer-centric brand and business. You talked about that on your last call. Um, you know, I think brands that own their channels and aren't reliant on supply, other sort of distribution have that advantage where they can go really deep with a customer. Um, and that means you have the data, but it also means you have the relationship, you have the connective tissue with, um, you know, all the stories that you tell. You know, what's a, did, when did you get to Detroit? I moved here. So I started the job in September and I was commuting, believe this or not, I was commuting from California. So I was flying here on Monday, going home on Thursday. And then my family and I relocated in November. So right in the, in the winter. <laughs> so what was, what was your favorite? Let's give Detroit a little love. I, I know oh. it was only, only like eight to 10 weeks before, or yeah. the 12, 14 weeks before COVID hit. But what was your first observation? I've just really enjoyed the resurrection of such a great city in a lot of yeah. ways. Um, your, your biggest observation for D-Town? Yeah. I mean, there, there is so much um, heart for Detroit. And one of the things that I think is really remarkable is just like when you come to Detroit, the people who are here are just so loving and they're like, yes, we welcome you, a new person into our community. And we want you to survive and thrive here because that's how we're going to thrive. Yeah. So that's one thing. I mean, the people very welcome. they're just loving, you know, and they want people to, to participate in their community, which is awesome. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time in my first six weeks of the job staying in hotels right in, in downtown Detroit um, and eating in restaurants. So um, because I didn't have a, a kitchen to cook in. So sure. I will do a shout out for what has become my favorite restaurant downtown, um, which is Layla. It's a Lebanese restaurant and I'm Lebanese. So it has Very special nice. meaning to me, but it's like amazing food. So wait, real quick, real quick, just for some fun. So you see a Lebanese restaurant in, you know, you know, I'm, I come from, you know, Soviet Russian descent. Like we're, there's always that thing. Is this going to be as good as my grandma's thing or oh, yeah. my family's thing? Like, are you, are you like a tough critic of Lebanese food and it like surprised you? So did it surprise you? Did like, like how did, how did that whole little Yes, I am a tough critic and it did surprise me pleasantly. Um, the dish that I always use to, to judge is a simple one. It's baba ganoush, but it's like, you know, it's sometimes it's those most simple things where you can tell what's going on. Um, 
And, but then it also has like a modern flair. So amazing cocktails, amazing vibe, great service. You know, so you feel like you're in a really cosmopolitan city in like a world-class restaurant. Um, and That's we awesome. have lived in New York and San Francisco. So we, we love that. Um, but you're spoiled with food. We're spoiled. But I will say the food here in Detroit has been really fantastic. So I'm pleasantly awesome. surprised and eager to get back out there and start eating my face off again. Well, thank you for being on. We really yeah, appreciate it. Thanks for having me. We'll talk soon. Take care. Thank you. Bye. Andre, thanks for having me. Two hours. I gave you my all. All right. Another marathon. Thank you, Gary. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in. Check out VaynerX.com if you want to see any of our recorded episodes. And let's keep the conversation going on hashtag marketing for the now. And register for next week. We've got an upcoming episode this Tuesday, July 28th. It's a morning one. So grab your, grab your tea, grab your coffee, 8 a.m. to 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. We've got a whole bunch of really awesome speakers. We're going to be focusing on our bodies, American Heart Association, Con Bodies founder and CEO. And then we'll be hearing from General Mills, Green Monday, Guardian Direct, JetBlue, Shell, and the author um, and a motivational speaker, Ryan Holiday. So can't wait to see you Tuesday, 8 a.m. See you then. Bye, everyone. All right, episode's over. Please leave a review and subscribe up on Apple. It would mean a lot, a lot, a lot, a lot to me. Thank you very much. Hey, podcast. Joe from Team Gary here. Today's highlighted review is Keep Keeping It 100% by Jay Torres 1523. I love your energy and the message you put out. Post more on sports cards now that sports cards are starting right back up. Keep those reviews coming. We could highlight yours next.